whenever life gives you a test, um, you can learn it by the seat of your pants, or you can try to study and prepare beforehand. Hello, and welcome back to another Mind Matters show. I'm your host, Ilan Martin, and joining me in the studio today are Harrison Keeley and Adam Daniels. Hello. And today we're going to ask the question of ourselves, and that question is, where do we draw the line in our personal choices? For the past few months, we've been looking at the encroaching policies and behaviors and actions and thoughts that point to a totalitarian movement that uh, threatens to crush the, the sovereignty, the liberty, the, uh, the amount of choices that we have and our ability to navigate life in a more or less free way. So the questions that we're facing uh, become increasingly more um, intense, immediate, urgent in some cases. And it seems like there is a, uh, an imperative, a, uh, a, a purpose to consciously looking at all of the, uh, all of the choices that uh, we do have in our ability to uh, decide upon if that's clear. And uh, also to see things as choices would be, a, I think, a first step in navigating through the times ahead. So we'll be looking at some information on the subject, some uh, thoughts on what personal choice is and how to go about deciding things for ourselves. And like I just intimated, seeing things as a choice and not going along with the default uh, behavior, uh, capitulating to every um, policy and every uh, idea that is coming from uh, up high uh, could be a way to empower ourselves moving forward into these times that we live in. So what does that mean? What does it look like? What are the thoughts that we have and the feelings that are associated with making such decisions? Do we share our thought processes with people we uh, trust and know? Do we keep them to ourselves? Do we uh, reflect upon them until the choice is no longer available to, to us to make? Um, all considerations that I think are worthy of our consideration and uh, are really kind of necessary in being as effective as individuals as we'd like to be in, uh, in making decisions for ourselves. So on that note, I'm wondering what you guys have to say. Well, you mentioned the, the choices that we, that we have and that we can make. <clears throat> I'll play the, the devil's advocate a bit and say that it's worth it's worth keeping in mind the 
the choices that we can't make and that or the choices that we think we make but that we don't make because it's uh it's pretty common to think for everyone to think they have a greater degree of choice and free will than they actually do have most people are completely you know you know myself included everyone mm -hmm. is pretty much completely unaware at most times of how much extrinsic or or internal things of which you're not aware are shaping your choices or even determining them. Right. So we've talked about this on multiple shows, including in our, you know, in some kind of technical detail in our interview with uh, James Carpenter, just about the degree of the degree of influence that we're under. And just one example of that is just priming or or conditioning. So just the the things that the little things in our environment that will skew us in one direction over another. And this shows up in in like the lab with priming experiments where the, you know they'll flash a an emotionally charged word and that will shift the the responses, the aggregate responses among a you know a, a group of test subjects in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. And they will be completely convinced that they were that they did it for one reason and completely unaware of the fact that it was simply because a word was flashed and they weren't consciously aware of it. Mm -hmm. You find the same thing in examples, another extreme case. Well, another case that isn't, um, isn't like an everyday occurrence for most people is examples of people with their, what is it? The corpus callosum or whatever, you know, links the, the two sides of the brain when you have, a split brain like that, if something is presented in the like the right visual sphere or right visual field or or the left, you can get strange phenomena where people will do things or perceive something but have a a conscious essentially a confabulation, a rationalization, a reason for doing something or seeing something mm -hmm. um, that is completely at odds with reality, but they're convinced of it. So there are strange things like that that influence our behaviors in all kinds of ways that uh, that we're unaware of, and we we ascribe it to these motivations that we give ourselves and the and the reasons that we give for for doing the things we do when it could be something completely trivial and completely unrelated. <clears throat> so there's that, but there's also personality factors. So a large to a large degree, what we do and how we how we interpret the world and how we react to situations is to a large degree influenced by our own personality, our own personality characteristics or traits. So you get a situation where, well, it's, it's just simply that there are so many factors that determine our interpretations and our reactions and our so-called choices that we're unaware of and that we then ignore and come up with a, a manufactured, confabulated reason for why we do a thing. And I think that needs to be taken into account too when when thinking about these things, because <clears throat> saying that you choose one thing and actually choosing it are two different things. Because when the it, it's like um, uh, we're not a lot, probably most people aren't as true to their word as they would like to be, mm -hmm. because literally they're well they're they're almost literally different people from one moment to the next so the the person making the promise to themselves like in a new year's resolution is different from the person a week later who's like ah, i've got better things to do and so we can we can lie to ourselves and we can convince ourselves that we're 
um, better people or that we will be better people than we actually are. We can, we can be totally convinced that we would behave in one way and then when put in a situation, behave in a completely different way. So I'll get into some examples of that. But with that in mind, I think that I think just keeping that in mind may be to some degree uh, a protection against against doing that other thing. Simply knowing that that might, I don't know how much that, how, you know, how measurable that effect might be or if, or if the effect even exists at all. But um, at the very least, it can't hurt to be, to be aware that, that you're probably more inconsistent than you think you are. And you're probably not as good a person as you think you are. Well, l- let me just uh, add a little bit to that or, or suss it out a bit because uh, you actually said quite a lot there. And um, it, it seems to coming, it seems to come down to knowing yourself, mm-hmm. knowing where your cognitive biases may lie and how cognitive biases work on you. Uh, you alluded to Gurdjieff's many eyes, many, as, you know, many aspects of one's personality that are seemingly contradictory where you decide one thing in one moment and, and actually behave and take actions that are, uh, completely opposite to a thought that you had in mind. And so uh, when I heard you describe all of those various influences, Harrison, in, in the very process of making a choice for oneself, I was wondering what, what does it look like for me in my processing of something to make a decision? What, what has to happen? How do I experience a, uh, the, the the challenge and the journey of making the right or the best decision I could possibly make on a difficult matter in the moment. And I would say usually it's only after the fact that I have made a mistake that I've that I see as a mistake that I go, holy shit, you know, that was what was I what was I thinking? And the answer is I wasn't thinking. I didn't take a moment to really focus on uh, what was involved, what what issues uh, played into a decision. Um, and that naturally takes a bit of time and uh, humility and soberness and clarity. And so I think, you know, there are a few things that, that are required to come together more or less simultaneously in order to truly or authentically make a, a choice where a number of different things are in going into play. And, um, I would say that that is, you know, those are a few of the things that would assist us in, in facing, uh, difficult choices in, in making authentic decisions. Um, and I would even add, you know, we, we've done a number of shows uh, with uh, Stephen Hertenstein, who discussed Sufism and um, George Aziz with uh, Gurdjieff. Joseph. Joseph, thank you. Uh, the, the idea that we are connected to um, different levels of intelligence and inspiration. And so I wouldn't even rule out a certain amount of asking 
just being open and in the in the question mm-hmm. consciously uh, of the universe of higher uh, levels of of knowledge uh, to assist us in in finding the information or finding the thought process uh, or the the friend that will see a perspective that I'm unaware of personally. Uh, all of these things are possibilities in helping us to form um, a good understanding, a good uh, uh, a good source of information mm-hmm. um, to to move forward. There's it reminds me of well, we're talking about this in the context you you brought up about like encroaching totalitarianism, and so it's good it's a good idea I think to look at previous previous examples of that state to understand kind of what's going on and what, what kind of things can be expected and the way things generally turn out. And so I was reminded of what Lobachevsky said about the imposition of communism in Poland in the mid fifties, mid to late or mid to late forties. And that initial period of like the, the Stalinist period into the, into the mid fifties. So after, after Stalin died in, in 53, things kind of cooled down for a while in 56. And he said in that initial period that things were really difficult and there was p- people were to put it like in a, in a modern phrase, people were stressed out. It, it was very anxiety, anxiety inducing and uh, produced a lot of, um, neurotic reactions. And the way he describes it is that early, early in those years, um, psychiatrists fi- found out that, uh, certain, um, like antipsychotic medications, um, I can't remember the name of the drug were actually pretty effective in chilling people out. And, but by, by 10 years later, like in the late fifties and the sixties, everyone had completely forgotten about that because they'd, they'd essentially, they'd adapted to conditions and, they could they could be taken into prison. They could be you know experience some degree of um, harassment and mistreatment by the the secret police and maintain their kind of resiliency and their their edge or you know their their autonomy mm-hmm. without completely falling to pieces. And he gives the example of himself by you know arrested numerous times, tortured numerous numerous times, and the third time he actually had a little, you know, confrontation with the police officers and was kind of like telling them off in a, in a witty manner. And they kind of respected him for that and treated him well, but it was because he, he wasn't afraid anymore. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's, well, the idea I'm getting at with this, at getting at with this is that there are certain, Certain environments, certain can, certain experiences or conditions can be seen as a kind of like a a school or a, a lesson, a te- a learning environment. When you're thrown into a, a novel situation, something unordinary, something that you haven't experienced in your life before, it's a test. And of course, when you when you first when you first encounter something that you're completely unfamiliar with, you pretty, you're probably going to fail the test. You know, you're not going to to guess the right answer right away. You're going to be stumbling in the dark for a while, trying to trying to find your bearings, trying to figure out the the best course of action to deal with this chaotic situation that you now have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And so that is collectively what a society experiences. You know, during the imposition of a totalitarian system, that tends to be what happens: is things fall apart. People are placed into a situation that they have no experience dealing with. 
Um, it's completely different than what they've experienced up to that point. Mm-hmm. And they have to relearn how to, how to live within this new environment. Mm-hmm. They have to adapt. And that adaptation can have, especially in a totalitarian system, that adaptation itself has negative impacts on your personality, your, you know, your everything, your, your thoughts, your feelings, your actions. Um, because you have to cope with a, you have to learn to cope and deal with a pathological system. And oftentimes that means acting in suboptimal ways within those conditions. Mm-hmm. So the way that Lobachevsky and Frank Dickhorter, um, in reference to China in the during the Great Leap Forward, is it? This was in reference to the like the the economic, the socio-economic structure of society. Is that people had to learn to become criminals? Essentially, mm-hmm. there was no legal way to survive, so you had to learn to lie, cheat, steal, just to survive. So people became expert at all of these things: lying, cheating, stealing, right, and like um, exploiting the system, exploiting all these tiny little loopholes um, just to just to get by. Mm-hmm. So that creates a culture of that mentality from then on. And so then, when you the, he writes this in the context of okay, so now imagine this uh, this totalitarian system disappearing and replacing it with something else. Well, whatever you replace it with, all of those patterns and habits have been established for decades, for generations, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to be an easy matter of just, you know, replacing communism with, you know, a free market economy or something. Or, you know, it's it's just not going to work. Um, that's why he was an advocate of a more evolutionary um, transformation where you keep things as much the same and change, you know, change you have to, yeah, incrementally, but you have to, you have to, you have to implement changes taking into account the pre, the, the pre-existing conditions and the fact that essentially people don't know how to, people aren't used to behaving, um, to trusting other people, for instance, because you can't trust other people. So you have to reestablish that kind of uh, network of trust among, in, among people, between people in society. Mm-hmm. Um, but, well, so there's that to, to consider. You've got this new situation, which is um, a test, a learning, a learning situation, a novel situation, chaos. You have to figure out what you're what you're going to do. Now, it seems to me that whenever life gives you a test, um, you can learn by the seat of your pants, or you can try to study and prepare beforehand. So this is where the, the discussion of kind of determining your your red lines and what you, how you would like to behave, how you would plan to behave in certain situations, might come into. Um, uh, might be important. So now this applies to this can apply to anything. So when you're learning a new skill, or when you're learning a sport or a or a musical instrument, one thing you can do is visualize it, right? You you can actually practice by visualizing and visualize, and that and I'm pretty sure that's been shown to actually be effective mm-hmm. in sports and music. You can actually vi- visualize your, your practice routine or your or your 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 moves on the you know the basketball court or something, and that actually does yeah. make you better at it. So by, by actually visualizing yourself in certain situations and playing through kind of like, um, you know, imaginatively putting yourself in these situations, that may have an effect that will, that will prepare you for that situation. And you might be able to do things completely unrelated that, that will create a skill that is, um, I don't, what's the word for it? Like, like a cross-domain skill, a skill you develop in one area that then becomes relevant and useful in a, a separate domain, a separate area. And... Part of that, I think, is, well, I th- I'm pretty sure, 
an important part of that would be, one way of putting it would be, well, developing your conscience, developing your intuition, because again, going back to the examples of living under totalitarianism, one of the part of this process of, of you could call it adaptation or getting used to the new system that Lobachevsky talks about is, is at, um, in those first years, you're kind of like a, a babe in the woods. You have no idea what's going on. But after some years and some experience, he describes um, that as like a, almost like a crucible where you learn to hear and to trust like your inner voice. And he describes that like Socrates' demon, the, the voice that tells you or do this and don't do this. Because mm-hmm. you're going to be thrown into situations where you don't know what to do. You don't know the reaction. You don't know the, the response. You have, again, because it's a novel situation. So when you're dealing with like a type of person or a group of people mm-hmm. and, and you have no idea what, what kind of, well, in ordinary interactions, we, in, in normal society, you have a pretty good idea of what kind of response or kind of like uh, actions on your part or statements on your part are going to um, elicit from the people you're interacting with. So you know that there's certain things you can't say unless you w- want to get punched in the face. And you know there's certain things you can say that will create, say and do, that will create a more or less harmonious um, interaction with the person involved, right? So Harrison, you, you said like a couple, of, a couple of nuggets that I feel it would be beneficial to parse out just a little bit. The first is, you know, anticipating or visualizing certain situations or scenarios that one might encounter that uh, you want to kind of prepare yourself for. And so what, what I wanted to say about that is, you know, we can look at the news, we can look at developments, we can look at behaviors and policies and things that are, that are bound to affect us. And we can have a, a, we can go into tizzies, we can throw shit fits, we can allow it to really upset ourselves or I think um, with as much as possible, a cool and determined, a more or less objective perspective, uh, say, okay, well, how will I respond to such a scenario and mm-hmm. think that through? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I thought that was, I thought that's a very useful kind of cognitive conscience, conscious way to, to navigate things. Uh, the other thing you mentioned was that kind of developing that kind of voice of intuition. And that's very interesting to me because how many times have I been doing something or I, you know, I have to make a kind of a split minute second decision about, am I going to do this? Am I going to do that? And pop, there's this little message in the back of my head that says, no, do this. And I don't know where it comes from. I don't know why I'm hearing it exactly. I don't know what part of my mind it originates from. And yet, uh, when I, there have been a number of occasions where I haven't acted on that voice, mm-hmm. that message, and, it, and, and the mistake was made. And, I, and, and that message, even though I, my rational mind was questioning it and unsure of, of why it would be valid, it was there and it was correct. So uh, I, I agree with that. I think that, and I think that's very useful. And I think that also speaks to a, a large part of, you know, the subjects we've been discussing on the show, uh, in particular, you know, foresight and, and intuition and this, and becoming aware to a greater degree of parts of our minds that speak to us and give us direction and give us, um, 
a, a better perspective from which to act upon that we might not ordinarily have uh, acted upon. That that we're not we we don't even really you know who who teaches us about this stuff we have to go out and kind of carve out an understanding for ourselves of of what of what that intuition is of how it works of when it presents itself so um, just two really good I think nuggets of uh, of of cognitive conscious conscious tools you mentioned Harrison mm-hmm. that that I. Uh, that I wanted to further uh, validate in my own experience, and just to carry on with the with two with the two ideas a little bit further, um, the visualization process can take into account the reality of the situation. Uh, I think it would actually behoove us to do it in that way, where um, some well, you just have to take stock of the situation. So like right now we understand that when uh, we'll just use Trump as a, for instance, whenever Trump would do something or he would make a statement about some policy who would be wanting to put forward, it would be somewhat radical and uh, somewhat impossible. And that was kind of the idea. Like that was the whole point is you, uh, that's his art of the deal is you start off with this impossible thing. So that way, when you work back to the thing you actually wanted, it seems much more reasonable. And that gets to kind of like what you were talking about before about uh, biases of perception. So taking that as kind of like a a working hypothesis in the way that uh, uh, totalitarian states and and whatnot will uh, encroach on people's lives, you can see what's happening in your everyday life the the new policies we'll just use macron as a for instance where he came out and said you know we're gonna we want to push forward this new vaccine pass mandate for uh you know wide swaths of uh french life and there was a major backlash to that well you can take that maybe at his word but it might not be be that that is what he wants in particular. It may just be that was what he put forward at first mm-hmm. so he could walk it back later to make some kind of, uh, uh, so that when people make a concession, it's more agreeable to them. And so this is kind of like what should go into visualizations, I think, is this kind of like, it's not game theory, but it's more like 3D chess, if it's possible. Uh you know, it, difficult it, it would de- definitely be, but uh, something that would be, uh, I think, useful to keep in mind. And then the other thing was the uh, uh, the development of, of conscience, that still small voice, the, the inspiration. I mean, we know this about uh, great scientific achievements. Mm-hmm. You'll be working on a problem, working on a problem, and then all of a sudden somebody has this flash of insight. Mm-hmm. which is totally outside of anything that they were working on before. I mean, it addresses the problem, but it's not something that they had thought of exactly. Mm-hmm. So faith comes into the situation in that way mm-hmm. where part of, part of being human is wanting to control your environment. You know, we all want to be able to control our lives. Mm-hmm. And so I, I understand that uh, personally. Mm-hmm. because, you know, I, I like to have a certain amount of control over things. 
but you can't control what other people do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you'll never be able to control that. So you have to accept the fact that you may not know what the best way to move forward is in one of your visualizations. You may not know, but you can maybe have faith in the fact that, you know, something or someone will at that time when it's needed present you with the solution because you may not have an awareness of some aspect of the situation right that is key in order to make it uh uh resolve or in order to resolve the situation in a beneficial way so it's like you know if you're trying to go through like a maze and then all of a sudden like uh before you go into the maze, you're like the red door. And you're like, I don't even know what that means. But then once you like get into the maze, Mm -hmm. you're like, Oh, there's a red door here. And you take it and know that was the exit. So you, you have to kind of like accept the, uh, accept the mystery, accept the mystery. (laughs) Yeah. Of, (laughs) of life. And, uh, the difficulty of navigating novel situations, I guess. Well, so that begs the question for me, Adam, you know, what, uh, what's, where does the investment in faith begin? And along that spectrum, you know, how do we make the distinction between faith and wishful thinking, for instance? Is it, is it a, more of a uh, a fact of one's um, being persistent and and uh, and not giving up and continuing to do what one can do in order to uh, improve on a situation. Uh, is it um, d- does wishful thinking imply a, a certain level or threshold or a line, a limit? that you cross over when you just kind of, uh, you know, not do anything to forward a given situation and, Mm -hmm. and. Well, I like to, to take it, I'll take it back to the scientific example, Mm -hmm. like to have faith in that instance is faith in the fact that you can solve the problem. And I wishful thinking isn't going to get you anywhere. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you have faith in the, in the possibility, let's say, that you can solve this problem. And so you work at it, you study all of the different variables, you try and work things out in your head, mm-hmm. and you keep going knowing that at some point something will give. A few, I can't remember which show it was, a few weeks ago we talked about the, I'll get the name wrong. I called it the Felix experiment, but I think it's the Philip experiment, the one where the, the those researchers like essentially conjured up this this fake spirit that they communicated with in their you know in seances, mm-hmm. and they created his backstory and everything. But but um, but during the experiment, I, I think it was on a Ouija board. I can't remember. It might have been wrappings, but but they'd essentially. For, for everyone involved, it seemed as if this creation of theirs was its own, ex, um, you know, existing external being or, or person. Um, when it actually wasn't, it was essentially a creation of their, uh, well, first of their conscious minds, and then uh, theoretically, um, 
proceeding with the experiment, it was an unconscious um, like expression of of their or an expression of their unconscious that came out automatically, like uh, through through like examples like automatic writing and stuff like that. Like a part of a part of the self that, that presents itself like a multiple personality as an external thing that's actually part of the personality of the the person involved. But anyways, there's part of the part of the reason that a lot of psi phenomena like that works is because of something I can't remember the technical term for it, but it's it's the projection outside of like your own inner agency. So even if something is absolutely certain to be you, some part of your own mind, by giving yourself the impression or convincing yourself that it's something external, that makes it easier to come out. So the example would be experiments with like a Ouija board where there's a a barrier in front of you and you can only see your half. And as long as you think there's another person on the other side, it will move, but it's much less likely to move if you think you're the only person touching it. But as soon as you just think that there's another person touching it, then the move, the movement, which is coming from your own like unconscious processes, like perhaps your parts of your subconscious mind expressing itself through these autonomous movements of your arm, you're convinced that, okay, well, it must be someone else there that's pushing it or that's moving it. And so you've convinced yourself, you've given yourself a reason for, for allowing that possibility to be real because uh, most people automatically will, th- will think, oh, well if, well, if I just touch this, there's no way that my hand's just going to move on its own. Mm-hmm. The only, if it's moving, that means something else must be moving it. Mm-hmm. Um, not aware that your, your body can do all kinds of things on its own, that that's just uh, on a simple level, has nothing, um, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with belief in other, in like a, a spiritual realm or anything like that. That's a, that's a totally separate question. Mm-hmm. But to bring, so the reason I'm bringing this up is in context of what you just said, Adam, about well, the, 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 the discussion about faith and and trust in the possibility of finding a solution, for instance. This comes back to Rod Dreher's book and our interview with him, mm-hmm. because the the people who were most successful at dealing with the communist reality- The name of that? The, the uh, live not by lies. Live not by lies, thank you. The people who were most successful were the, the religious people who- who had actual, you know, religious faith, who put their trust in God in something external, something higher than themselves. Right. If you just trust, oh, well, you know, I can figure this out. It might not, maybe it'll work, but it probably won't be as effective as putting your, your faith in something bigger than yourself mm-hmm. of which you are a part perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, so I, I just wanted to throw that out, that out, that out there, whether, again, it's not a matter of whether it's true or not. That's a separate question the the actual practical practical aspect of it is how you perceive it and it may be that it's actually true and that the way you perceive it um well that's a complicated question like with the ouija board it's like is the other person really there well um because it does seem kind of weird you have to in that situation you have to trick yourself right you have to you have to lie to yourself so that makes me uncomfortable but i don't know maybe there's well, I tell you what all that reminds me of. Um, so uh, I was reading um, one of Mary Bellog's books recently. Uh, I think this one was the Westcott series, Someone to Care, where uh, is it Byron's um, uh, piece about no man is an island? Uh, I was reminded of, of that uh, idea that we're not 
see, we spend a lot of time with ourselves and our own thoughts. We become self-absorbed. We engage in thought loops and we're, we can become self-absorbed and focused in on our own issues and, and problems and uh, selfish concerns and not selfish concerns. And, and so in addition to this idea of having faith in things above us and in, in uh, knowledge that and and engaging in a, a religion of faith and and things that are higher, I think that there's also something to be said for uh, the high value of being able to um, express one's experience and one's uh, and sharing of one's knowledge with another human being who is as interested in as and as curious about how all this works as possible. Because um, when this connection is made, um, you know, we talked about gaining different perspectives and working on a problem. Uh, there's much to be said about, uh, you know, the perspective that, that one may uh, receive speaking to another individual that one um, is, is close to. Um, but there's this this openness, this vulnerability, and a level of give and take that perhaps we're not used to engaging in, that that we might benefit from engaging in uh, by having this exchange of of thoughts and perspectives. So I would say that uh, in addition to um, the 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 power, the strengthening ability that religion has on us, um, as described in, in what you just said, Harrison, there's also a lot to be said about having a certain amount of faith in, in the people that you feel closest to. And, and that may not always be a, a perfect solution. We can be- Some of them are going to turn on you. Yes. Uh, that's possible too. Uh, but it just as sure as <sighs> that idea I think is also the probability that there will be people who, who do want to go further with themselves and with others and, and want to grow and strengthen themselves uh, in, in a constructive exchange of experiences and thoughts and perceptions and, um, and even problems. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's a, that's, Yet another aspect of, of all this is the networking aspect where there's much you can do on your own, but there is so much more that you can do when you're involved in a group. It, you know, Rod Dreher, uh, his book is an example with, mm -hmm. with the, the, the underground groups mm -hmm. that people would form of, of like-minded individuals who are able to uh, take care of each other first but also people outside of their group and, and the outreach that they were able to accomplish along those lines. So that becomes an, another uh, aspect of, of how to make a right decision is uh, having a group of people around you who, you know, through, uh, through the process of getting to know them and sharing with them and, and working with them that you, 
develop that kind of a relationship where you can trust them to have your back mm -hmm. and that they can trust you to have their back as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So. And that's, I think that's one of the, that's one of the essential things to learn and to do and to, to just like preparing beforehand, like by visualization, it's probably a good idea to prepare beforehand by doing that now mm -hmm. and doing it five, 10 years ago, because that, because the way things turn out is that those kinds of social bonds get broken. Like I mentioned, I, I joked about people turning on you, but that that's true. Like every, pretty much everyone will turn on everyone in some way to start out with, usually because they're afraid everyone, because you don't know, even people in, in your family, like your old network of friends, you don't know if one of those people is going to then turn on you and you know, turn you into the secret police mm -hmm. that happened that, and that always happens. So the, the next the part of the process of not only adapt, not, not adaptation, but kind of healing through the, through that, that like social disease process is reestablishing those bonds. And so that's, that's essentially why those groups were able to form is because they were able to, able to reform those bonds that were broken by the you know the pathocratic system to to begin with so if you can if you can learn to do learn to establish those types of bonds beforehand and make them healthy enough and strong enough then maybe they will for the most part they'll probably just statistically for the most part they'll they'll be able to withstand the you know the the, the pathocratic um, you know process just because most most people most people, when passing through that process, eventually become part of that society of normal people because they're normal people. Most people are are normal, but just by by definition of you know normal, the like ninety percent, ninety five percent of of people who don't have personality disorders, and then the there's the the, the five to ten percent of personality disorder people that form the pathocratic party. Mm -hmm. So just by virtue of the fact that you're interacting with nine people, chances are if you've got a good relationship with with all of them, maybe one of them will turn out to be a you know. Uh, a, a backstabbing traitor, right? So at least you've got those nine other, or those eight other people, if you're one of them. But mm. so there's that. Um, I wanted to come back to a couple of things. One was the the visualization thing. You, I think it was you, Alon. You know, well, we we were discussing the things the things to visualize. Maybe it was Adam, like the the kind of situations to to visualize. But uh, this is where I. This is where I, one of the things I agree with Jordan Peterson about is the importance of negative visualization. So visualizing yourself doing the things you don't want to do and that you don't see yourself doing. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, I'd have to, I don't know if there's been a lot of research on something like that or, but because on the surface of it, you'd think that if you imagine yourself doing bad things, it might be more likely that you'd that you'd do them, but it's probably has something to do with your frame of mind and, and your purpose in carrying out that visualization. Because, um, if you're doing it to be horrified by yourself, then, then chances maybe, yeah, maybe it wouldn't have the effect of making you more likely to do it. But he, the example he right. gives of is related to the Holocaust, right? He, he always says in, in many of his lectures and talks that, uh, that you should imagine that you're going to be the one that's, you know, mass executing whoever the enemy of the day is and that you would have been that kind of person, you know, 
chances are you would have been that person if you were in that situation. So I wanted to talk a bit about that because it relates to what I first started out by saying um, in regards to the things that determine your choices that you think you make when you don't actually make them and that you don't you probably don't have as good an idea of who you are and what you'd be like in certain situations. Um, when you finally experience them, you might be you might be surprised to, to find that that you're behaving in a way that's completely opposite of what you thought you would do. And uh, so in that regard, I wanted to, well, this is inspired because um, Peterson recently did an interview or interviewed uh, Michael Malice and they were, they got into this a bit. And so it just kind of brought it to mind again. And uh, so I wanted to bring up one of the studies that's important for this. There are a few and they're all pretty much all well-known. So first there was the Milgram experiment, the obedience to authority experiment, where you get someone in and you, you, you tell them, the experimenter tells them that they're going to be involved in this learning experiment and there's another person like in another room and they're going to have to answer some, some questions and when they, get, when they get them wrong, you're going to have to give them a shock. <laughs> and the more questions they get wrong, the bigger the shock is going to be. And of course, no one's getting a shock. The, the person's an actor, but it's to see how far a person is going to go. So the second one is the Stanford prison experiment. And then kind of like the third one isn't an experiment, but of course it is uh, Nazi Germany. And like one of the best books to read on that is Christopher Browning's uh, Ordinary Men, dealing with the reserve battalion, police battalion 101, who was kind of these these people that weren't part of the army. A lot of them were kind of like middle-aged. These were the guys left behind. They were the reserve police that were that were left behind, not going to the war to the war front. And then they were basically recruited recruited to to follow the the front like into Poland and to just mass slaughter people, um, particularly Jews. So Browning in that book makes reference to Milgram and Zimbardo and kind of points out that the the result of this the of his study on the 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 members of this police reserve battalion match up pretty well with the the results of Milgram and Zimbardo's experiments. So I wanted to read a bit from Zimbardo's book that uh, that he published in 2008 on the, the prison experiment, uh, Lucifer Effect. And he's got a section here where he summarizes the Milgram experiment. So I just want to read a bit. So first of all, about like on average on this ex- in this experiment, two out of every three of the volunteers went all the way up to the maximum shock level of 450 volts. Um, what they were given to believe in, which is a deadly, uh, a deadly voltage for a human. So oftentimes the person would stop responding, you know, they'd be screaming in the, in the other room and they'd be saying, okay, no, give him another shock. He's not answering, give him another shock. So they'd be shocking a person that they thought was already dead. So it's a, it was a pretty macabre, um, experiment, but learned a lot from it. But this, uh, let me read a bit more. So the data clearly revealed the extreme pliability of human nature. Almost everyone could be totally obedient or almost everyone could resist authority pressures. It all depended on the situational variables they experienced. Milgram was able to demonstrate that compliance rates could soar to over 90% of people continuing the, the 450 volt maximum or be reduced to less than 10% by introducing just one crucial variable into the compliance recipe. So playing around with the conditions of the experiment, he could get that 
that's 65% two out of, out of every three pull, two out, two out of every three pull. <laughs> I like it. Um, up to 90%, nine out of, nine out of every 10 pull. <laughs> um, and some of the ways they did that, I'll, I'll read. So want maximum obedience? Make the subject a member of a teaching team in which the job of pulling the shock lever to punish the victim is given to another person, a confederate, so an actor, while the subject assists with other parts of the procedure. So you just give them a, a side role where they're the ones, um, you know, telling someone else to do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and oh, okay, no, 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 now I have to give the shock. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the, the role of the teaching assistant kind of person. And that will get up to 90%, 90% of people to go all the way. Okay, now, want people to resist authority pressures, provide social models of peers who rebelled. Participants also refused to deliver the shocks if the learner said he wanted to be shocked. That's masochistic, masochistic, and they are not sadists. So you play, that's one where you're actually playing with their their impressions of themselves. Well, I'm not a sadist, and this person wants me to shock him. Well, I'm not going to shock him. Um, An interesting little thing there. They were also reluctant to give high levels of shock when the experimenter filled in as the learner. They were more likely to shock when the learner was remote than in proximity. So if you can't see them, if they're in another room, mm-hmm. uh, where, uh, or compare, in contrast to them being like right next to you, if they're st- like sitting right next to you and you're giving them the shock, you're less likely to do it. So in each of the other variations on this diverse range, range of American citizens, of widely varying ages and occupations, and of both genders, it was possible to elicit low, medium, or high levels of compliant behavior with a flick of the situational switch, as if one were simply turning a human nature dial within their psyches. So there are a few other things here. Um, he gives another an example of another experiment. Um, this is under the section, the section Obedience to a Powerful Legitimate Authority. That's one of the elements of why this works, why this situation works. So when a college professor was the authority figure telling college students, college student volunteers that their task was to train a puppy by conditioning its behavior using electric shocks, he elicited, he elicited 75% obedience from them. In this experiment, uh, both the experimenter teacher and the learner were authentic. That is college students acted as the teacher attempting to condition a cuddly little puppy Uh, the learner, in an electrified apparatus. The puppy was supposed to learn a task, and shocks were given when it failed to respond correctly in a given time interval. As in Milgram's experiments, they had to deliver a series of 30 graded shocks, up to 450 volts, in the training process. Each of the 13 male and 13 female subjects individually saw and heard the puppy squealing and jumping around the electrified grid as they pressed lever after lever. There was no doubt that they were hurting the puppy with each shock they administered. Although the shock intensities were much lower than indicated by the voltage labels appearing on the shock box, they were still powerful enough to to evoke clearly distressed reactions from the puppy with each successive press of the shock switches. So basically, they were giving this puppy real shocks, just not as much as they thought that they were giving them. Mm -hmm. So as you might imagine, the students were clearly upset during the experiment. Some of the females cried, and the male students also expressed a lot of distress. Did they refuse to continue once they could see the suffering they were causing right before their eyes? For all too many, their personal distress did not lead to behavioral disobedience. About half of the males, 54%, went all the way to 450 volts. 
the big surprise came from the women's high level of obedience. Despite their dissent and weeping, 100% of the female college students obeyed to the full extent possible in shocking the puppy as it tried to solve an insoluble task. Wow. A similar result was found in an unpublished study with adolescent high school girls. The typical finding with human victims, including Milgram's own findings, is that there are no male-female gender differences in obedience. So typically there aren't any, but in these experiments there were. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> now, the, another interesting thing is before the Milgram experiment, they, uh, they actually, I think they asked, did they ask psychologists or psychiatrists to, to guess how many people would, would go through with it? Um, let me just see if I can find the one on, on Milgram. They basically, okay, well, I can't find it, but, but they, the prediction was that 1% of people would go through with it. And that was the experience. That was the, that was the prediction of experts, right? So the experts thought that 1%, oh, here it is. So Milgram described his experiment to a group of 40 psychiatrists and then asked them to estimate the percentage of American citizens who would go to each of the uh, who would go to each of the 30 levels in his experiment. On average, they predicted less than one percent would go all the way to the end, that only sadists would engage in such sadistic behavior, and that most people would drop out at the tenth level of 150 volts. Okay, so let's There's one more thing to finish because right. it's, it's directly related. So for this test mm -hmm. with the puppy. When the students were asked to predict how far an average woman would go on the task, they estimated 0%. Mm -hmm. And Zimbardo asks, or responds, Riley, a far cry from 100%. <laughs> so, there. So, what do you want to say? Well, just that, so we've, we've just listened to all that. <laughs> we, we are reminded of the... Uh, the capacity for relatively normal people to behave uh, atrociously, to respond to authority, uh, and to be tools for the implementation of authoritarian policies. Um, so there is this kind of, you know, now that's knowledge for us. And I think, you know, as you mentioned before, Harrison, this is Peterson uh, had experienced a an urge to do something mm -hmm. rather dark once. I think you mentioned it on one of the shows. Poke a student in the back of the neck with his pencil. <laughs> yes. And I think, if I remember correctly, what he described was allowing himself to feel or experience the visceral horror of, of understanding that he was cap quite capable mm -hmm. of doing what is uh, a pretty evil thing. So... I think what we're saying here, maybe a, may a, maybe a way to um, translate some of this knowledge is to realize viscerally, however unpleasant it may be, that uh, there is a latent capacity within each of us to uh, allow authoritarian pressure on us to act on us and for us to uh, do things in a reaction that we might otherwise, if we're really thinking about it, uh, should horrify us and, and truly horrify us. And, and I don't know, um, it, it's, it's quite something to allow oneself to experience horror and, 
of, of such a possibility because naturally we'd all like to think of ourselves as good people, as, as people yeah. with conscience. And um, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to add on to that, that most of the people in general are good people. Like they just, well, it's a, it's a distinction, right? It depends on how you define a good person. Is a, is a good person someone who, who never does anything bad? Um, I'm going just on the kind of common sense, just conversational use of a good person. Like these are good people, decent people in everyday life. Right. And, and even it, like in the example, they point out that I, I didn't get into the Milgram experiment in, in depth, but just like in the, the puppy experiment, these people were emotionally distraught during this thing. You can imagine it, mm -hmm. right? You can imagine someone in the other room screaming, begging for their life, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so these people were sweating. They were, some of them were begging to, 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 to stop saying that they wouldn't continue. And then, but the, the part of the experimenter's role was to become more authoritarian throughout the experiment. You start out rational and all, all nice and kind, and then slowly you, you take off the mask and you start being irrational and, and just, and domineering and saying like, so no, you have to do it, do it. And, and so these people were like, you could have a, a, I don't know if any of them had nervous breakdowns, but you can imagine they probably could or did after the fact or even during it because they were stressed out. They were, it was extremely anxiety provoking. It was distressing to them. Mm -hmm. And you see the same thing with the reserve police battalion, their first time out, their first time out where they round up families, you know, young kids, women, old people, and line them up and shoot them in the head. Some of them vomited, you know, they'd, they'd vomit afterwards, you know, or, or, dur or doing it because it was just so disgusting. Mm -hmm. And, but they, they soon learned that they could get drunk every night and go along with it. But that's the thing I wanted to compare this to is that I, I mentioned that Browning himself compares uh, the, the results of his study of these individuals in the police reserve battalion with these experiments, because what he found was that a, a similar range of responses in the reserve police battalion, you had less than 20% who refused to take part. Mm -hmm. And that's actually somewhat heartening, you know, but, but even then the, the conditions of well, I'll describe briefly the conditions. The the commander basically told them, "You don't have to do it. You know, if you want to, if you want to back out, that's fine." And so some took him up on the offer, and like, okay, no, I'm not, I'm not going to take part. But the a lot of the people that did, they did so because they're. I wouldn't exactly call it conformity. It, it wasn't because other people were doing it. It was because their their peers would have to be the ones doing it on their own. And they didn't want to, you know, leave their buddies to be the ones killing all these people. They felt they had to participate too. It was the honorable thing to do would be to participate so that, you know, as a group, so that, you know, because, because the, 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 the impression, the interpretation was if you weren't, if you weren't doing it, that was essentially a selfish response. It was selfish to take yourself out of the equation mm -hmm. and let and, and leave everyone else to do the dirty work. And that's a really kind of twisted uh, response to the whole thing, mm -hmm. because as you were saying before, 
it's in the very act of not conforming right. that you help elicit and encourage the more constructive response among people that you're around to say, hey, you know, mm -hmm. that person's right. I'm not going to do it either. Mm -hmm. uh, a kind of social proof. So that's very interesting mm -hmm. at, that out of some misplaced desire to save one's uh, compatriot from doing something, you know, alone and horrible, uh, you're actually feeding into the whole dynamic as opposed to putting one's foot down where one could. And I, I didn't know that part. I didn't read the book, but I didn't know that part about being given the choice. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting yeah. to me. And it's, it's, un, it's uncertain because this is just one one group, right? So I'm not sure if that was essentially like a policy, if, if most people did it that way, or mm -hmm. if this was, you know, an exception to the rule, mm -hmm. but that's, that's how these, that's how it operated with these guys, with this reserve police battalion. And, uh, another thing like that, it's hard to tell. I can't, I can't remember if it was clear in the book or not. Uh, one of the guys involved, he, I'm, I'm pretty sure I may be remembering details incorrectly, but I'm pretty sure this guy either made a point of killing children or if it was just a one-time thing. Um, but his explanation for why he killed this one kid in this one, one instance, um, it's hard to tell if, if essentially if he was lying and giving and doing impression management, or if this was his actual motivation, like the other guys who were, who were doing it for, out of some sense of honor for the, you know, the rest of their buddies that this guy said, well, Something like he was doing, he had, he was putting the kid out of his misery because we just shot his mom, right? So he wanted to, so he was essentially it was like a mercy kill in his mind, mm -hmm. and so that also just goes to show if he wasn't just a sadist, I can't remember if he was one of the sadistic guys among the group, but it that just goes to show the 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 kind of rationalizations that we'll tell ourselves, right? Right. Um, about I mentioned that right at the beginning that. We do things and then we give ourselves, we tell ourselves reasons. We give ourselves reasons for why we did the things that we did, even if they're completely unrelated to what the actual reasons were. But to get back to the, to the sadists, because I mentioned that there, he found a similar results. So whenever you have a situation like this, you get a range of results, right? So I mentioned the, the less than 20% that didn't participate. And, and this, that might mean that they actually sat out from the very beginning, or that might mean that when they're going out to the, to the forest, um, you know, to the mass grave to, to shoot these people in and push their bodies in, they might just, you know, wander off and just get lost for an hour or two. Mm -hmm. Or, or um, I can't, in this situation, I don't think that they, because the, the, the killings were so up close and personal, it couldn't be like in a, in a, in a war situation where you just aim a bit to the right or the left. So you're firing, but you're not actually shooting at anyone because these guys, they, the, the rule was essentially that you had to, there were certain places where you had to shoot them. You have to, had to do it up close and personal, essentially. So they couldn't escape that way, I don't think, um, maybe in certain situations. But yeah, you just get lost. You just wander off for a while. So there was a lot of that going on. Mm -hmm. But then there were the, the majority of people. So that would be like the, the up to 80%, some are less than 80%, who were just the guys that went along with it and, and did it like, like a job. And then there was the small group of the sadists who enjoyed doing it and um, had absolutely no problem with it. So it was almost like this psychological selection mechanism going on where you have a range of people. And it was the same thing in the Stanford 
prison experiment. It was probably the same thing, but I haven't seen this level of analysis on Milgram. Or if you look at the individual personalities, you'll find that kind of bell curve. You'll find on one end, the people that, that refuse kind of no matter what, mm -hmm. you'll get most, the, the people in the middle who are distressed, don't want to do it, but go along with it anyways. And then ranging into that other tail of the people that were just like, oh, this is great. I've been waiting for, for an opportunity like this. And mm -hmm. they just, you know, take to it immediately and enjoy doing it and have no problem doing it. Mm -hmm. So the small group of, of sadists among the group. And that's the kind of level of, um, level of complexity, even though it's simplified, that, uh, that I think a lot of people miss when they think about situations like this. So it's not a matter of everyone, everyone will react in this way. It's like, you're, you're going to be a Nazi just like everyone else. Mm -hmm. Well, chances are you'll be a reluctant Nazi. Because most, um, and I use Nazi in a particular sense here, I'm talking specifically in, in, in reference to this um, police reserve battalion, most of them were reluctant to some degree, right? And in the Milgram, most of the people were reluctant. Most people, most people are reluctant to this kind of thing to some degree because they're normal people. They'll do it, but they won't like doing it. Mm -hmm. And they might convince themselves that they might even convince themselves that they're they're doing it for a good reason, but they but they still won't like doing it. Like a lot of these police guys, they had their reasons, right? And they they wouldn't most of them wouldn't frame it in moral terms, like oh this is this is wrong. I'm uh, I'm not doing it, or or we shouldn't be doing this. It was something else, like the honor thing. Right. They had another reason for why. And and some of the people, even some of the guys that didn't do it, would kind of um, see themselves as. Uh, there, there was a word they used, basically like wimps, essentially. Mm -hmm. you no, know, oh, I'm just a wimp. You know, I just, I just can't handle it. Well, let, let's uh, let's look at that a little bit because, like you mentioned, Harrison, there was a percentage of people in the Milgram experiment and in this uh, this World War II policing um, episode that flat out knew for themselves that they didn't want to and and decided that they weren't going to go ahead mm -hmm. and participate. That there was something uh, in their constitution, in their um, in their assessment of of the situation, and in their inner being and and strength and awareness that was at such a level that they could uh, take themselves out of that equation to some great extent. And so um, we, you know, we aspire to, to that level of saying and meaning, uh, no, no, that, that's not what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. And you can stand over me with uh, your threats and your badgering and your coercion and your anger and frustration and you know, it, it's it's not going to work basically because my value is higher than your uh, your fearsome tactics. Now, you know, I say these things naturally at a distance, right? I say these things uh, with the comfort of sitting here and having this discussion mm -hmm. and looking at all of these things in a rather abstract. Yeah, uh, it's got a gun to your head. Yes, so. You know, that let's be as realistic as we can about this. Um, by the same token, if there is a measure of space, and if this is what I wanted to say, I, 
you know, this is unpleasant material to have to think about for oneself in, a, in any kind of meaningful way. And, uh, but it's important to, at least to some degree, to, to know that these things do exist, even if we're living comfy lives, relatively speaking, with our jobs and our friends and our families and our Netflix and our novels and our research and our various things that, you know, this is kind of like the direction that, uh, that reality is moving towards and that we're being kind of, not kind of, but we're being forced to confront to some extent or another. Um, I think the benefit of looking at all of this uh, in a, in, like I said, a meaningful way, and by meaningful, I mean in a visceral, as visceral a way as possible, is that uh, we, you know, the hope is that we can mitigate um, within ourselves and our, our ability to, to do or not do certain things. Uh, we can mitigate the, the negativity and the damage that is possible uh, under such circumstances or variations of such um of such scenarios so that's pretty much it folks we realize it's a you know this is heavy subject matter um i did propose to the guys here that we do some cat videos with <laughs> uh our videos the other day and that was promptly shut down um i was only half serious but uh i i can understand <laughs> wanting to take a break and, and having a laugh and do have a laugh and do enjoy yourself. And also, if you can, to the greatest extent possible, think about these things because they do matter. And if you're watching this show, it's probably because you already know that they matter. And um, thanks guys for such good, insightful comments today. And uh, we wish you all a good week and thanks for listening.